Good morning. Look at this bad boy. Huh? This is pretty cool. I don't know why Pastor Drew thought he needed something with so much protection, but uh, look at this. So um, this morning we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. And uh, one of the, this was a uh, priority in the early church. And as we try to pattern ourselves off from the early church, um, that's what we'll be doing today. If we look at Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So it was a priority for the church to get together to break bread and take the elements to remember the Lord's suffering and his death. But also on the top of their priority list was the Apostles' Doctrine, which is Bible teaching. And so today we are looking at Deuteronomy 19. And remember when the Apostles taught, basically it was the Old Testament because that was their scripture to learn and understand these prophetic words. And it's perfect that we're having the Lord's Supper today because the cities of refuge as I think you will see, points to our redemption. So now in this chapter, Moses knows that he is about to move on to his heavenly destination shortly. So he gathers his people around him, and he gives this massive teaching to them. Not a 30 or 40 minute sermon, but a six week sermon. And so this farewell address from Moses is the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is sharing his heart with the people, reminding them of what they had been instructed uh, previously. Now in the book of Deuteronomy, the whole issue here is relationships. And I have some good news and bad news. The good news is God has never changed since then. And bad news, neither has man changed since then. So the basic message of Deuteronomy, believe it or not, is love. It's not a question of do's or don'ts. It's not about legalism, as you might uh, get from a superficial reading of this book, but it's about God's relationship with his people. We see the love of God for his people and the obligations in response. And even though we're not under the Mosaic Law, there's many principles we can glean here about God's character. So in chapter 19, we're going to be talking about refuge, redemption, and retribution. And this chapter shows us that among the key responsibilities of any society is to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. So essentially what's happening here is they're anticipating settlement. They've been wandering, as you know, for 38 years, and they're used to be uh, as traveling as a nomadic tribe, but soon they're going to be going into the land under General Joshua, and there'll be some changes. So as a nomadic tribe, they had a central authority with Moses and the priests and so forth. There will be a distribution of the land now, so that's going to cause some changes. So under Moses, the altar had become an asylum. 
And that doesn't work if you're going to be spread out across the land. Now, when uh, I was given this chapter, I started studying, and a couple tools when you're studying Bible study that are very important is first, a Bible, right? And secondly, a concordance. And um, I'm not talking about the little book behind Revelation in your Bible. I'm talking about a real concordance, like Strong's Concordance. And in a concordance, you can find every word in the Bible and where it, where it is. So I like to do a search. So I did a search on the cities of refuge. And it popped up in chapter 4, way back in chapter 4. I go, well, we've already t- talked about this. This is great. So I go on our website, and you can listen to our sermons on the website. So I looked up chapter 4, and Pastor Drew was teaching chapter 4. I go, this is great. So I started listening to it, and it's towards the end, so I fast-forwarded, and I found it, City of Refuge. And what he said, I couldn't wait to hear what he had said. And he said, we're not going to be talking about the City of Refuge. We're going to wait till chapter 19... And we'll be studying it in great detail. <laughs> now, I don't know if he knew if he was going to be doing 19 or not. So we don't want to make Pastor Drew uh, out to be uh, not truthful, right? So let's jump into chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and dispossesses them, and settles in their cities and in their houses, you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord God gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself, and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord God will give you as a possession, so that any manslayer may flee there. So here we see the ideas of the city of refuge. There's, they've already set up three on the east side of Jordan, which was in back, back in chapter 4, and now they're going to set up three more on the west side. And you can see the fulfillment of these cities and the names of these cities if you fast forward to Joshua chapter 20. So first we need to understand that when they enter the land, each of the tribes, except the tribe of Levi, get a portion of land. The Levites did not inherit land. They inherited the Lord. That was their inheritance. And they got the priesthood, as we saw back in the beginning of chapter 18 last week. They got these 48 cities, and they were assigned to the Levites. And six of the 48 cities were known as the cities of refuge. Let's look at verses 4 through 10. Now this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live. When he kills his friend unintentionally, not having hated him previously, as when a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger 
and overtake him because the way is long and take his life, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated him previously. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall set aside three cities for yourself. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory just as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he has promised to give your fathers. Verse 9. If you carefully observe all these commandments which I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord God gives you as an inheritance. And blood guiltness be on you. So the idea is if you found yourself in a situation where you caused the death of someone accidentally, and the example Moses uses, if you're chopping down a tree and your axe head flies off and kills your friend, um, that was accidental. That was not premeditated. It wasn't a killing that was planned. It deals with something, maybe you got in an argument with somebody and a fight broke out and the guy died. You didn't intentionally want to kill him, but he died anyway. So you would get to flee to one of these six cities of refuge and there you'd be protected until a fair trial could be held because the avenger of blood was coming after you. He was a, the avenger of blood was the next of kin. But he couldn't touch you if you had made it to one of these cities of refuge. And as long as you remained in the city of refuge, you were safe. If you left the city of refuge for any reason, you were fair game to the avenger. Now realize they did not have an organized police force. It's interesting to realize that the nation of Israel did not have a police force as such, and they had no prisons. In fact, if you read many commentators, they tend to regard this whole procedure as just a quaint custom of ancient Israel. This nomadic tribe converting to a settlement tribe. This is all just cultural background. But if you recognize that Scripture is designed by God himself and that every detail there is precisely by his engineering, it might have some implications that are far more profound. We start asking ourselves some questions like, what's going on here? Because there's another aspect of these cities that are very strange. You had asylum, you were safe in the cities of refuge until... The high priest died. When the high priest died, you were free to go. And this all comes out of Numbers chapter 35, if you would like to study that. So you say, well, that's kind of weird because the six cities are scattered across the whole nation. So what does the death of the high priest down in Jerusalem have to do with anything? Well, that was the procedure. So we see here in this passage God's protection, justice, and concern for the innocent. But what do we do with all this information? Well, I have a theory. I haven't been able to prove the theory completely. I've been working on it for 40 years. 
Um, but I believe the Bible points us to Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe all 66 books in the Bible point us to Jesus Christ. Every chapter in the Bible, every verse in, in every chapter, every word and perhaps the punctuation. In Hebrews 10, 7, Jesus said, the volume of the book is about me. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Colossians 2, 17, Paul is speaking of the law here, and he says, the law is a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Well, if everything in Scripture points to Christ, what about these cities of refuge? Here's an ancient practice to provide asylum for unintentional manslaughter. So what's that got to do with anything in modern times? Well, whenever you have a puzzle like that, well, let's see what happens if you put Christ right in the middle of it. So Jesus Christ was crucified. Question, was his crucifixion first-degree murder or manslaughter, accidental murder? Well, from God's point of view, I believe it's first-degree murder, right? Because Acts 2, 23 tells us, Jesus the Nazarene, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So I think you can argue from God's perspective it's premeditated because thousands of years went into the preparation of that event. But that's from God's point of view. What about our point of view? Yours and mine. Was it manslaughter? Was it unintentional? I'm going to suggest that it was because Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, Luke 23, verse 34, said, Father, forgive them, for they what? Know not what they do. So from our point of view, you could argue that it's manslaughter. Well, in that case, the cities of refuge apply, don't they? Well, what's our city of refuge? Jesus Christ. And I'm going to suggest that Jesus Christ is the refuge for man, of course. And this whole idea of city of refuge would keep you safe until what event occurred? The high priest died. Jesus Christ is our high priest, right? So we have freedom by the death of the high priest. In Hebrews 6, verses 18 says that Jesus is our refuge whom we have fled. And verse 20 tells us that Jesus has become our high priest forever. So in a fascinating way, I think these cities of refuge as a type of Christ and God's appointed refuge for us. And Acts 4.12 tells us that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So in the Torah, there's all kinds of rules and regulations for these cities. They had to make sure that the highways were open 24 hours a day. They were always clear. 
The bridges had to be in good repair, and at every crossroad, there was to be a sign that said, that away to the cities of refuge. So the whole idea here was to make these cities easy to reach. And that's why these six cities, if you'll notice, they're scattered across the map to be within a day's journey. Well, there's no easier refuge to reach than Jesus Christ. He's open to all, right? The gates were never locked in the city of refuge, and all of this works until the high priest dies. And our high priest has died to atone for our sins. God has always provided a refuge for sinners, whether it was the ark before the world was going to be destroyed, and that ark only had one door, only one way to enter this giant boat, and that door represents the only means of escape from God's judgment. And Jesus proclaimed, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Now, of course, there's some differences in the city of refuge. Only the innocent are saved. Of course, we're all guilty. And, of course, Jesus Christ is far more available to us in these cities. Not a one-day's journey. How close? Romans 10 tells us. Romans 10, verses 8 and 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So as long as we abide in Christ, we are safe. And then how secure are we in Christ? John 10, verses 28 through 29 tells us, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the Father and the Son are both holding you. So back to Deuteronomy 19, verses 11 and 12. But if there's a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, now here we have a different situation. We would call this premeditated murder. But if there's a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him, and strikes him so that he dies and flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and take him from, the, from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel, that it may go well with you. See, the cities of refuge could not provide sanctuary for a murderer. So if it was first-degree murder, if he intentionally killed another, he had no place in the city of refuge. And the Bible is full of warnings to those who try to use the grace of God to cover their sin. Now, some people practice golf for hours on end. Some people practice the piano, and others practice sin. They practice it so they get really good at it. But 1 John 3, 9 tells us that a true believer does not habitually, deliberately, continually practice sin. We all struggle with sin, but there's a difference between a person who struggles with sin and one who intentionally sins. 
Now, most of us have played the part of the prodigal son, but the reason the prodigal son could not stay in the pig pen because he wasn't a pig. Look at the word in verse 11. If he hates, hates his brother. I want you to notice something about the law. The law did not simply only deal with outward actions. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament as a list of do's and don'ts controlling our outward actions. But here it's an inward action. Remember Jesus said, For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murderers. And then he said, You have heard it said by those of old that you shall not commit murder, but I say to you that if you are angry with your brother, you are guilty. So he was talking about inward attitude. Because when we're angry at another person, we begin to kill them. And I don't mean physically, but comments that we make. Our words can assassinate a person's character, a reputation. So we need to be careful not only what we say, but also what we listen to. Now look at the word in your text, avenger. Verses, uh, that word appears in verses 6 and in 12. The word avenger, translated here, avenger of blood, is the Hebrew word goel. Some of you might be familiar with that word, goel. Goel was essentially a family protector. He was a near kinsman, traditionally the nearest male relative. And we generally translate, you see in the scriptures, Goel translated kinsman redeemer. And this is detailed for us in, uh, in the book of Ruth. That's what the book of Ruth is about, the kinsman redeemer. So the idea of the avenger of blood is a relative. He's not a mafia member. It's not the godfather sending somebody out to rub, rub out somebody. It was a relative who performed a legal function. Boaz, if you recall, he redeemed the land of inheritance and took Ruth to bride. He had to be willing and he had to be able to perform. The one that's going to redeem you and I, the sons of Adam, had to be a kinsman. He had to be a man also. And that's what God ordained in Genesis chapter 3. It would be an offspring of Adam that would be the Redeemer. So that's why Jesus is not just a Redeemer. Jesus is our kinsman Redeemer. That's why God himself became a man to perform in man's helpless situation. And Jesus came and he was able to fulfill the law. And he was able and he was innocent and sinless. That's what the Goel is all about. But there's a flip side to this. Most of us are familiar with the kinsman-redeemer aspect of Christ, but what we forget about is the Goel, if you flip the coin over, he is also the avenger of blood. Jesus came the first time as our kinsman-redeemer. I don't know if you've heard, but he's coming again a second time. And when he comes the second time, his role will be in the avenger of blood. 2 Peter 3.7 tells us, But his word, 
But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And Jesus explains both of his functions as the goel in the first two verses of Isaiah 61. Let's go to verse 14. You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set. In your inheritance, you will inherit the land that the Lord God gives you to possess. So most of the references in the scriptures to this sin is about the strong, seizing land from the weak. So this too is a law to protect the innocent. And Proverbs 23, 10, and 11 warns that God will appear on the behalf of the innocent. Do not move the ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong and he will plead their cause against you. Now today in the church we see boundaries being moved. This narrow path that we're on is being broadened. And Jesus warned about the broad path. He said it leads to destruction. We're not to mess with the old-time boundaries which the ancestors have set, it tells us. Now, some people say to you and me, well, that's old-fashioned, that's legalistic, that's churchy. We're much freer these days. Christianity is not progressing with the times. Those old ideas, being concerned about alternate lifestyles, or restricting the pulpit ministry to men. Those are archaic boundaries, and we don't need to respect them anymore. We're much more knowledgeable these days. God's word says when you enter the promised land, the spirit-filled life, don't move the old boundaries. They're there for a reason. People will say to us, that's legalism. No, it's wisdom. So when people say to you and me, times are different now, it's not true because such teachings have never been acknowledged or accepted in church history. And the reason that I mention this is we are under pressure these days to move the boundaries. Verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. And this concept is echoed throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. And it's fascinating to realize that at the trial of Jesus, they could not find one witness to agree. And all six trials that night were all illegal in every detail. So it says when there's a dispute or an accusation, there needs to be a confirmation of two witnesses or three. You can't just take one man's word for it. There needs to be two or three before a judgment can be decided. So what happens when there's a conflicting story? If there's not a second witness or a third witness, what do they do? Verses 16 through 18 tell us. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord before the priests and before the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly 
So they're to, be, to come before the priests and the judges and the lords, and they've got to find out what the truth is. There's to be a thorough investigation made. There needs to be getting a, to the truth. Jesus said that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, right? So when there's conflicting stories, we need to, the truth needs to be brought out because there's not going to be freedom until the truth is told. Verses 18 and 9 to 20. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest of you will hear and be afraid, and never will do, it, do again such evil things among you. So knowing this, whenever someone would bring a charge against somebody and testify in a case, they would be very careful because if the accuser's testimony was found to be false, he would receive the punishment for the alleged crime. So if it was a capital murder situation, the false witness would be put to death. I would think that would uh, discourage perjury. Remember in the book of uh, Esther, there was a fellow named uh, Haman. He made these huge gallows, right, to hang the Jews on. You know what happened if you know the story, right? Haman himself was hanged on those gallows that the Jews, he built to hang the Jews on. See, it came back on him, and that's, that's the idea, that's the concept here. So verse 21, he goes on to say, Thus you shall show no pity. This is hard stuff, but it's important. If there's going to be purity, happiness, and freedom. But life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. This is an ancient law called lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation or retribution. It's been previously given by Moses in Leviticus and also Exodus. And this sounds very severe to us because of our background, but what it was intended to convey was that the punishment should fit the crime. The idea was not to go above and beyond what was done. Now, people say that sounds so harsh, but it's God's mercy keeping people from getting out of control. Because my tendency is, if you give me a black eye, well, you're going to get two shiners. If you knock out one of my teeth, you're going to be wearing dentures. <laughs> but most people think of this as a law of vengeance. It's not. This is to limit vengeance. Human nature would go above and beyond. We want to repay tenfold. So this was originally given by the Lord to enforce a mercy. And one reason God restricts vengeance, that's why God restricts vengeance to himself. Romans 12, 19 tells us, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In no instance in the Old Testament 
Did the Lord allow an individual to take the law into his own hands? It had to go through the civil justice system of Israel. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the law. There is no mercy in the law. I thank God that he's not judging us on the basis of the law. God saves by grace. If he was saving by the law, we would all be lost because none of us could keep the requirements. Make no mistake, God enforces his law. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty and now there is pardon for sinners. It's interesting also when you realize in Matthew 5, Jesus takes this scripture and he turns it on its ear. Listen to what the Lord said in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go two. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So here the Lord is showing us that the highest way to treat somebody is not revenge. The highest way to treat somebody is forgiveness. So before we have communion, let's sum up what we've just read. Here we are hearing the heart of a loving father saying to his children, there is a city of refuge when we do something wrong. But don't use the refuge as an excuse or a covering to do sinful acts intentionally and thinking you'll be okay. It doesn't work that way. And don't go moving the boundaries written in the word. And if there is a problem, hey, there is to be diligent inquisition made for the truth, not for condemnation, but to set people free. And then if a person was falsely accusing another, the false accuser, when discovered, he's to take the heat. And finally, not vengeance, but forgiveness is the highest act. We are to be a refuge for people. The church is to be a haven for genuine asylum seekers. And the cities are also prophetic. And they demonstrate God's grace and his mercy. They speak of the future, ultimate refuge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because a, a criminal could flee to one of these cities of refuge and be protected while the high priest was alive. And when the high priest died, it was as his death atoned for the sins. In the New Testament, Jesus is called our great high priest, our merciful high priest, and forever our high priest. Though he could have avenged us for our sins, he became the redeemer. The avenger, the goel, is the one who sets us free by taking the punishment upon himself. And that's what we celebrate when we remember and come to the Lord's table this morning. So in the, uh, in the back and in the front, there's some tables set up. And uh, after we pray, I'm going to invite you to come up, take the elements back to your seat, and spend some one-on-one -on -one personal time with the Lord for what he's done for us.
Now, um, it's called the Lord's Supper because it was the last meal that Jesus took with his disciples before he went to the cross. And Jesus took this old meal and he gave it a new meaning. The Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt. Jesus gave it a new meaning. He said, do this now in remembrance of me. Christ was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament laws. I'm going to read out of uh, chapter 22, Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and his apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this, share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you is the most important concept in the entire Bible because it's the concept of substitutionary death. Let's pray. Father, as we come, Lord, and take the elements, Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to our hearts, Lord, and just remind us of the extreme majors that you went to to secure our salvation. Lord, we thank you that you are our refuge now and forever, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would not wander away from, from that refuge, Lord, but you would cause us, Lord, to hold close to you. We just thank you and we give you this time in the name of Jesus. Amen.